Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. Al Martin here. I am pleased with the success of the podcast. Originally, it was just a way for me to network, learn, and have some fun. Currently, we have around, I think, 30,000 downloads a month. And hopefully you're getting the benefits that I'm getting as well, that network learning and having fun. The great news for me is that many of our guests, we get to pick and choose now from from podcast brokers and and people that reach out. And they're great guests. Uh, I do work at IBM, though, and I enjoy working at IBM. I'm responsible for technical sales. After a career in support, development and services, I believe we have a terrific strategy, hybrid cloud and AI. So today, I'm staying close to home. I have invited a gentleman by the name of Roger Primo. He's the GM of strategy and corporate development. He does some portfolio management. He comes to us from Boston Consulting Group. And what I like about Roger that he probably doesn't know is he's got this great strategic Slack channel, internal to IBM, called Roger That, which is very transparent about our strategy amongst everyone within IBM and our ongoing plans. And Roger, I was recently listening to a discussion where you said, hey, you weren't an initial fan of Roger That, which was kind of surprising to me. That's a great, great name. I wish I had the name Roger so I could use it in a great Slack channel. It's fabulous. Uh, (laughs) As uh, if you grew up with the name Roger, people have been saying Roger That to you like your whole life. So I had to get over that. But uh, yeah, no, it's turned out great. It has turned out great. I mean, and it is a great Slack channel. I think it's more transparency than we've ever had. To start, why don't you explain your background, where you've been, what brings you here, and then we'll we'll go into strategy and some discussion that we have. By the way, I'd like to keep this like strategy at a bar, like we were writing on a napkin or something. Those are the best discussions to have. But give me your background first. Yeah, so, um, you know, kind of a varied background. But so I was a, 20 years ago, I was a software and startup guy in the Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley. So I'd been through a number of companies during the dot-com bubble and burst and, and was a software, software SaaS guy by, by training. Uh, I did this little 13 year digression into strategy. So I went to business school and landed at Boston consulting group doing strategy consulting and actually found out, I thought it was going to be a training ground and stick around for a couple of years, ended up staying there for quite a long time. Um, and really learning, learning and enjoying doing strategy work and recognizing how Picking the right strategy is really fundamental to getting, you know, a business to execute. Uh, in that capacity, I had IBM as a client for a decade. So worked with a lot of the IBM leadership team, was in some of the early work that was kind of, I remember doing strategy work. The first time I heard about a client that was deliberately placing workloads across multiple clouds for diversification of risk and innovation, some aha moments along the way. And now that's many years in the, in the rearview mirror around, you know, what later became the hybrid cloud strategy. Um, and then, you know, having worked on that, having worked on a lot of things with Red Hat as well as IBM went through the process of acquiring Red Hat, I got a call in March, 2020 from Arvind, now the CEO of IBM to help, you know, do it from uh, this side. So it was a kind of a a thrill and honor. It was an opportunity to kind of put my money more in my mouth was on the strategy work. So uh, as you said, Roger, that there's been a lot of what I expected and then things like Roger that and embracing kind of the broader IBM community and how much engagement and energy we've had around the strategy that have been 
some unanticipated joys of, of, of living on this side of the fence with IBM. I've always wondered, being part of BCG and getting paid to do strategy, I think would be kind of awesome. How are you evaluated, though? I mean, do you, is it client retention? Well, first of all, strategy is hard, right? It's, it's <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, I went, it, the bar is high. And if you're going to have, it, it's true of anything for the, our IBM consulting business as well. If you're going to walk into a set of folks that know their business well and actually do work that shapes them and shapes direction in a positive way, and not only does work that should shape them, but it convinces them enough to change direction, the bar is high to get that done. So, uh, you know, uh, there's a tremendous learning curve in that. There's a high expectation on that. But at the end of the day, uh, it is, yes, you are, <laughs> as you move more senior in career, you're, you're measured by whether or not you've got client clients that are growing with you and keep asking you back. Um, and uh Doing good strategy is hard work. So consistently being asked back is, is is a high bar. Well, Arvin can be persuasive. I've talked with him many times as well. But why come to IBM? What what was the catalyst? Uh, oh, listen, I it wasn't actually. I loved what I did at BCG. It was a great experience, um, and I'm I'm in, you know forever grateful. To kind of the the opportunity and the personal development I had there, but. Uh, I'm a I'm a tech guy. I live on the U. I live outside of Boston, so I'm on the East Coast. I'd helped with pieces of the strategy along the way, and just the opportunity. I think we'll get to it, but I think we're in this place where IBM has had this great history of living through these these technology cycles. But each generation, it's not promised to IBM. Our competition is not trying to cheer for IBM to go through this next cycle. So it's it's up to us and and being kind of hands on the steering wheel to help us jump to that, you know, live through that next great generation for IBM, I think is, is a kind of a historic technology and business challenge that I'm just like thrilled to be a part of. And, uh, and we'll get to it a bit in the strategy, but I also believe we had the ingredients to make that possible where, you know, I think before we started making some of these strategic shifts, there wasn't as clear a path for how we do that. I, I concur with you. We will get to that. How much time do you spend between or spend between shaping IBM strategy, corporate development, or portfolio management? Is it all strategy and then some corporate development? Is it equal thirds? I, well, first off, it would be hard to separate any hour in the day and say it was any one of those things, right? They, they're so interlinked. So we spent, we do a lot of work on, you know, periodically we revisit the market strategy, the context overall. We also do strategy projects within the individual parts of IBM or across pieces of IBM to accelerate our excel, accelerate our achievement of the strategy. We do portfolio management to kind of look at the quantitative investment allocation, returns, market positioning. And obviously we do the inorganic side of that. How do we acquire, divest, shape the portfolio to better execute that both, you know, portfolio management largely organically acquisitions, you know, the inorganic side. Um, I'd say it's probably, you know, 40, 40, 40, 20, if you had picked it, put it in those three buckets of, of strategy, um, strategy, por uh, acquisitions and, and portfolio simply because portfolio is a much more quantitative thing that you got to let the data dictate it, the building acquisition cases and progressing those through the pipeline and then doing the core strategy work. Those just have a lot more day-to-day -day executional 
efforts on it. Um, but they all, like I said, if you looked at any one piece of work, you could probably argue that it's portfolio strategy and inorganic simultaneously, because at the end of the day, when you say like, I want to improve my performance in a particular market, how I do that organically, how I might do that inorganically is always almost always part of the thought process, because at the end of the day, you got to, we'll build the strategies, but you do something in the portfolio to execute against it. You came to IBM, what, 2020? Yeah, uh, started May 2020. So you come in and you say, hey, they're on the right path. This is going to take, you know, I'm just going to have to refine this strategy. No, I need to rebuild this strategy. No, I just need to tweak this strategy. Where was your mind frame? Uh, A couple of things. I'll just share one little personal story. It is funny, you know, so it was March 2020, I got the call from Marvin. We had just entered the first like pandemic thing. So first off, jumped into the job kind of back. Remember when we said, hey, we're all just going to go back, work from home for a few weeks, and then we'll be back in the office. So lived through, it was all like very, a very, a lot of simultaneous variables there. Um, but no, I, so I had a sincere belief in the strategy we were on coming in. The, the strategic North Star of hybrid cloud and AI. And I just think, you know, my old boss, Jim Whitehurst, who I spent a lot of time with from Red Hat, he had a great way to describe it. You know, a great strategy creates value for your customers and as a way for you as a vendor to capture value. And so we, we know from a bunch of work that a hybrid cloud architecture is just a better way for companies to drive digital innovation. So it creates value for them. That's unambiguous. We're on a bit of a we're still building the awareness of that in the market, but that is just technical truth. And that would be true if you went with IBM and Red Hat, or if you went with one of our competitors on that architecture, it's just a better architecture for the future of how companies will innovate. And then, you know, with what we have in Red Hat and how we've transformed the IBM portfolio, obviously Red Hat is in a leadership position on the open source layer that is the core of that hybrid cloud. And then what, how we've transformed our portfolio to build upon that, to have the consulting skills to implement that, to have the infrastructure that can run that layer and bring the differentiation of our infrastructure to life in that open source layer. We have a portfolio that's constructed to for us to be able to deliver and capture value on that strategy. So most of that, you know, from being a consultant working closely with IBM, those were my going in understanding and beliefs. And so... I knew we weren't going to pick another North Star. It was about how do we accelerate our progress because we're not the, like, if you look at when we bought Red Hat, the term hybrid cloud was kind of viewed a little bit more as like an interim step on the way to the public cloud. If you remember containers and Kubernetes in particular was one of a few different competing standards for what is that software layer. Now, practically every company in the world has adopted containers and Kubernetes is what they build on. So I knew I, I had a sense that we were on the right path and then everything is about accelerating it. But like some of that technical trends and understanding of hybrid cloud, I also think the markets moved in our direction over that time, like over the last several years, which has been great. It meant that the bets we were placing at that point in time, a lot of them are coming to life. I think, so let, let's dive into that on the hybrid cloud piece. Um, to your point, uh, I spent a lot of time working with clients around a hybrid cloud strategy. And we did it very purposeful, as you mentioned. 
But originally, I think there was some kind of inclination that while we have a cloud, you know, AWS doing really well with the cloud, uh, Azure doing well with their cloud, um, or Microsoft, I should say, with Azure. The question is, is, well, IBM, you're just going hybrid because that suits your interest. How would you answer that? Um, You know, first up, I I think... Part of a hybrid cloud strategy. So I, I lead, we call it executive advocate, but I'm the lead executive in charge of our AWS relationship. So first off, we will collaborate with them. So it's not an either or. And hybrid cloud means that, you know, we deeply collaborate with AWS to help bring that to life because market leading cloud. So many times if you pick, if you say hybrid cloud, the public cloud component of that is often AWS or Azure, like you said, but it, it gets to this reality. So maybe back to my consulting background, done a lot of like process re-engineering work. And time after time, when you do process re-engineering work, the biggest lever to get performance out of an organization is standardization. Common ways of doing things, common practices, so that everybody in the organization knows how to execute. And so if you take that metaphor down to digital innovation, if I've got a different, if I've got different development methodologies, different tool chains, different services in every place that I, I want to innovate, that's going to get that's going to slow down innovation because different skills we need to build different execution operations the inconsistencies between def- different technical platforms create executional risk they create security risk there's there's real value in standardization and that's maybe something that's like kind of deeply ingrained in me from my strategy background and knowing that the, that value if you pick a kind of a common software layer in which to do digital innovation, yeah, I can look a client in the eyes and say, this is not just an IBM statement. This is, this is just solid, good advice for you. And like I said, if you picked one of our competitors to, to build that common software layer, that would be good for you too, because it will, it will, in the long run, it will make your, everything you want to accomplish across your di- call it digital innovation agenda or tech led strategies it will make them be faster, better, more secure, more efficient. That is just, it's true. And it, but it is a, to your point, I think we're the term hybrid cloud. It, there's a lot of folks that went down a pick your hyperscale cloud. They went down a path that was only on one of those. And so it does require a bit of a rethink and any architecture that's like has, if we insist on technical purity, that is the downfall of many architectures. There'll be places where we build things that are custom that only run in AWS or only run in Azure, or, you know, pick your technology standard. I accept that that will happen, but where it's feasible to create that standardization layer, our clients will see business benefits from that. I think part of the challenge you mentioned earlier, I think originally a lot of the clients considered it hybrid cloud as maybe temporary. Yeah. Now, we had a very different thought process. Part part of it is we had the capability in the the portfolio to perform a hybrid cloud day one. And I think we were pretty clear on that strategy. And the cool thing is now almost all companies now are talking about hybrid cloud and, and are coming back. Is it because, I won't mention any names, but if you pick your company of choice, your maybe data warehousing company of choice, I mean, it's easy for them to say, move everything. Then they have their your data, you're, you're in the cloud, uh, they don't have the capability unless they're going to partner with a lot of other companies to be able to do the hybrid cloud. They're going to send message, and some of them are still sending it today that, you know, look, no, it's cloud, cloud or bust, move your data. Do you find that challenge? Are you still combating that when you're meeting with clients? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so 
I'd say before I get to that, I just other just market facts. You know, if you think of hybrid cloud, we did just recently on my team do this kind of outside in market market compare. And if you look at that understanding of hybrid cloud, what has happened? Well, first of all, there's multi-cloud. Most companies now are also saying, I'm going to run across multiple clouds. And that creates the same kind of complexity you would have had in a, you know, or similar kind of complexities you would have had in an on-prem and one public cloud. We also have edge technologies, right? So those are industry by industry. There's different forms of how edge will happen, but they want to do digital innovation. And that inherently isn't going to be in a big public cloud data center. So that's another way that they're, call it heterogeneous tech, call it hybrid cloud, but it's there's heterogeneity of where they need to do this. And then the other thing that's happened is as a service, obviously clients have been adopting as a service for a while, but they're recognizing that the data from as a service has to connect to other pieces of their processes. And so they're not treating as a service applications as like a sidecar that's separate from their digital innovation agenda. It has to fit in. So that, that hybridity or that heterogeneity continues to grow because if it's edge or SaaS or whatever, the business demands it, right? It is a business necessity and it's forcing that heterogeneity. And then if you get to the data layer, you know, absolutely. Like in that massive heterogeneous world, you know, again, uh, I think there are a bunch of kind of your big cloud data warehouses that they say, I will solve your data analytics and AI problems. Step one, take all of your data and put it into my cloud data warehouse. And it's just, it's a, it's a, and by the way, they're betting, you know, IBM probably did this in our data warehouse business. That has been an answer a lot of warehousing companies have had through time. Uh -huh. And it's, it's, it's expensive, it's impractical. And in a world where you're always spinning up more data sources and there's live data that, you know, isn't going to make it to the warehouse by the time that you actually need to analyze it. Like, it's just not a practical answer. Now, with that said, I don't want to, there are places where there are big places where the cloud data warehouse and what we can do of doing warehousing on top of cloud object storage is like the default storage location. We'll head there, but it, it can't be the sole answer to your data problems. And it, and, and I think at the data layer, similar to what we have on hybrid cloud, I think heterogeneous data has a very similar problem statement, which is how do you tackle that? How do we not pretend that the heterogeneity is going to go away. How do we embrace the heterogeneity and practically address it? That's what we're doing in our portfolio around, you know, on the AI side, but it's, it's our data fabric strategy, which is saying where you can standardize for sure, but you need something that's more intelligent than that. Because if making your heterogeneity go away is your pre-step to make analytics and AI really work for you, you'll just never get there. Do you think there's a day where we will be all cloud? The industry, or you could be like Anderson Horowitz. Several years ago, they said the cloud is dead, and they were talking about the edge. Like we're moving the next step is the edge. So before you even get the cloud, everybody gets there. They're already back to the edge, and you're distributed again. Uh, yeah, I think Andreessen had a great publication last year. Just picking on those guys for a second. You know, the trillion dollar cloud paradox. Like to start on cloud, not starting on cloud is foolish. Finishing on cloud is foolish, depending on what scale level you get. And they go through the you know, the, the Dropbox case, case study. So on some level, and I think, listen, edge technologies, maybe like, maybe one of the cloud vendors will provide some of that tech, but at some level, like edge technologies are going to be about having computing, living proximate to where business executes. If that's manufacturing, if that's a retail location, whatever, and has to operate with 
if uh, you know a thunderstorm knocks out the connection to the internet, it has the business continue, has to continue to function. We're seeing this. You know, there's always been these like distributed, centralized, distributed, centralized kind of movements in computing overall. And I think we're seeing a move towards more distributed. That's inherently uh, not a giant hyperscale cloud data center. There, that market will continue to grow, but there's these new workloads coming online. So I no, I don't think we'll ever land in an all cloud world, but you know, cloud will continue to be, it will continue to grow and be important and be a big vector of innovation for a long time to come. It just, it will not be this, like I said, architectural purity is like a losing argument and we will never have yeah. architectural purity on any one tech architecture. Cause it's like, this is a fit for purpose world. You have to land the technology in the place that delivers the results for the business. And that may be about physical location. It may be different silicon. It may be about different capabilities of particular vendor offers. I think you got it. We got to recognize we're, we're in a fit for purpose world and, and, and innovate with that in mind. Well, that all, everything you said right there kind of plays into hybrid cloud, does it not? I mean, right into that strategy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you follow my Slack channel, I mean, I just, there is what I love about our strategies. We like, we have to, we have to describe it. We have to execute against it, but there is technical and business truth behind it. Like we have, it's not, we're trying to pitch like a, a, a fabricated story. There's inherent truth and good advice in that. And the confidence we can have in talking to our clients and say, yes, this, the heterogeneity exists. This is a better path. And that's why we have this hybrid cloud and AI strategy. Like it is inherently what we just discussed is the underpinning truths that have taken us to this strategy. Why is, why is Red Hat and containerization so essential to our strategy? I mean, there's some people out there who say, I'll just stick with a hypervisor. You don't need the containerization. Uh, I'd say a few things. Um, first of all, you know, there were commercial vendors along the way, you know, IBM among them that tried to pursue this notion of a software layer that could run across environments to provide that standardization. And it's a, but it's a big ambition, right? Um, we got this gift, right? 2014 Google open source Kubernetes. And they gave us this starting point that was mature enough that a lot of the open source community rallied around it. So first of all, there's with that kind of starting point Google gave us and just the volume of innovation that comes from the open source community. It could have been any other standard, frankly, it just, we, we got one that was good enough. And then the acceleration it gets got because the open source community really rallied around it has made it technically feasible to execute that. And that happens to be containers and Kubernetes. And of course, there's lots of the way you can put a single service inside a container, the way you can do handle loads. And it, there's a lot of merits to why that works, the way you share resources across containers that there's a lot of computer science answers to that as well. But, you know, fundamentally, we've proved that bold vision that says I can have a common way to innovate across different environments is now feasible. And it's thanks to that starting point plus open source. Then you get to why Red Hat, you just, that there are, with that broad open source community, there's lots of ways that a particular open source project can go wrong. So somebody that's scanning, integrating, securing, supporting open source so that you actually can bet your business on it. You know, Red Hat has kind of been the clear leader in that for, you know, decades now. So 
betting on open source, I think, you know, is very clear. Betting on open source containers and Kubernetes is a technical direction that is working. Betting on Red Hat as a vendor that does that well in a way that companies can bet the business on is, um, you know, clearly a, a good direction. And then the last thing I'd say, just to link it back to the data conversation, if you look at how we're still at this world where we're just barely getting to AI inferencing, outnumbering training workloads in AI, the way most inferencing is done in the wild is inside a container because you can wrap that algorithm inside a container so that you get a repeat. If you just put a naked algorithm onto a different environment, you can put the same data in and get a different data out. That encapsulation and container means that your AI gets more repeatable so it's not just something that is in the hybrid cloud layer. The executional operation of AI is in containers and Kubernetes as well. So it, it links that technical architecture transcends kind of all of our portfolio. And again, it's, it's like technical truth. Like others are doing that long before, you know, we declared, you know, Red Hat as our target standard for, for hybrid cloud. You know, one thing when I'm talking to customers, if I'm to oversimplify our strategy, I'll say, look, we're, we're open, and you're right, Red Hat gives us that. We can run anywhere, but the beauty of it, you sum that up, you can modernize now. It's not about no. moving bits and bytes to get where you need to get. It's about leaving them where they reside, leaving data where it resides if it works for you, or you know, if you need to clean up some data or whatever, you can move it into a warehouse or otherwise, but you can modernize this minute, whereas a lot of other competitors are saying, oh, you got to move, and once you move, I mean, this is a big, big endeavor. Now, one comment I get back that I'd like your comment on is usually there's agreement. I can debate pretty well, but there's agreement. And then they say, yeah, but let's be honest now. You are asking me to really change my infrastructure around a containerization platform, which is a pretty big investment on my end. So even though you talk about open and stuff, it's, it's, there's a little bit of lock in there, my, my friend. How would you answer that? I've got my own answer, but how would you answer it? I'd say, I'd say first off, um, I think anytime you pick a technical standard, you, yeah, you have some degree of, I don't like the word lock-in, but you've made choices and it's about picking an architecture you're going to build to. So, and if it is, if it was a company that was like writing their own platform or distributing their own open source, or if it was, you know, a commercial vendor, like it was VMware for virtualization or Oracle for databases or AWS for cloud services, at some level, you're making a choice and you have to live with that choice. I would say though, for open source, if you pick, if for whatever reason, IBM and Red Hat, like turned out to be a bad vendor, because it's got common open source underpinnings, the switching cost, if you were to move platforms is much lower than it would be if you're on a completely proprietary stack that bears no resemblance to anybody's others. So the commonality of open source does reduce some of the switching costs, but I'll, I'll tell you, like, you know, if you look at, you know, the way I, that's why I'm super proud of what Red Hat's done through the years. I mean, we don't see switching away from Red Hat Linux at scale. It's because they've been good, reliable, reasonable vendors for, for decades now. So like I, uh, you know, to some extent, I look at the Red Hat track record and say, who's been a vendor, you know, have you had a better OS vendor than Red Hat in the history of your business? And the answer is typically no. So why would you expect anything different in this era from, from our friends at Red Hat? And so, 
a lot of time that gets uncomfortable. But, you know, at the same time, I understand the question simply because it is a massive choice. It's the future technical architecture of your business. And that should have some real diligence in it. Well, I think at the end of the day, you're, you're making a choice on containerization, right? And, and we just feel like we have the best containerization strategy in, in Red Hat. And where we do continue to differentiate is, is going back to the design point of being open. I mean, literally, and we have clients that can do this and do do this. If you want to use your own database, then have to be an IBM database, use it. Now, yeah. we like our database, but it's very open and uh, because that's the nature of the containerized uh, platform. That's also a reason why we've kept Red Hat distinct so that uh, we hold true to you know that, that openness as a design. I, I'd also just chime in one other thing, which is, you know, I just think there's been a seismic shift in the role of open source, right? If you think of like the Linux, MySQL eras, a lot of times that was a open source equivalent functionality of something that was available commercially. Now open source is fundamentally where innovation happens. And so just betting on that, betting on millions of developers to power innovation faster than the finite number of developers that you'd have from any commercial vendor, it's just a good bet. And then you say, listen, do I want to support it myself? Do I want to work with Red Hat? Do I want to work with another vendor? I think over time you figure out, man, supporting open source is tough work. I don't want to, I don't want my development team spending a bunch of their time there. And then it's, you know, it's Red Hat or somebody else, but you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, if you think about what's going on in the open source community, how much it powers innovation, you know, the choice of the containers and Kubernetes are simply, you know, one instance of where the open source community has picked a standard and, you know, betting against those millions of developers is just a bad bet. Yeah, that is great, great answer. Let me, let me take a step back. Maybe you've already answered this, but I, I'm going to ask it anyway. Let's say you're traveling on business. Yeah. And you find yourself, you know, you're at the bar by yourself. Cause I know I got to say you're traveling on business. Cause I know you wouldn't go to the bar by yourself otherwise. So you're traveling on business. You've got a CEO that's traveling. You find that he's in the tech world as well. He's, he runs a tech company and he finds that you're from IBM and you're sitting down there. You each having a little bit of a dinner and a drink. And he says, why IBM? Well, what's your best bar pitch on why IBM? So I do two things. So first I'd say, First, I talk about our hybrid cloud strategy that we just went through and say, do you right. have complexity in your IT environment? Do you have different, are you, are you finding that you have different skill populations you have hired? Are you, dis, are you having challenges with the rate and pace of innovation in your organization? And it's 100% yes to that answer. Do you want to get more innovation outcome? Say, we have a platform that drives that standardization with modern techniques, with that innovation tailwind of the open source community. And that's what we built our business around. And that typically, you know, gets a lot of response. And then, and so we bet our businesses around, we bet our business around it. And, and we think you should too. And then you go, why, why make that bet with IBM? And you talk about the track record of Red Hat and open source. We talk about the track record of IBM. These are bets. I mean, the lock-in question is a really fair one because it's a big, we're making a decade plus long bet for the future of our clients. And you say, are you going to bet on the company that's helped generations of clients through that has, has like shifted society and technology, or are you going to make a decades long bet on a company that's not yet a decade old? And I just think we've been that partner to so many, if it's like the moon mission, modern banking, you know, like the early days of the U S census going from physical to, to, to being tracked with data, 
there's so many generations of big bets that clients have made with us that have paid off. I just think we are the, we are the partner that you can you can bet your business with and know we'll we'll be at your side even if our technology even if it was in our fault there's so many places where IBM's kind of rallied to help our clients when their business is on the line so I, I think we're just we're the vendor that you can bet on and we have the track record to show it as expected you're you're in strategy you, know, you tackled it head on I, by the way hey Al I'm not I'm I'm taking this from our clients too I mean they are they recognize you know I probably should have started with this we've gone from this world, right? This other thing that's changed. We've gone from this world, like IT, the department, you know, the IT is dead era. Like we're so far past that. Technology is picking winners and losers in businesses. So see, you know, senior leadership team, CEOs understand that like when they make technology choices, they are betting their business. And, and so we see a bunch of CEOs tell us that IBM, I am suspicious of some of those other guys. Like either they don't have the track record, they don't have the, like I'm worried that they're going to jump into my industry and compete with with me. So we have a lot of our clients telling us like we should be louder and prouder about, about that track record because they see it in us. They they look at us and say, shoot, if I've got somebody that I've got to be in the tent with for the next 10, 20 years, 30 years, if you're talking about certain industries where you're going to build industrial equipment that's going to be in the field for decades to come. You know, they look at IBM as kind of the only vendor that even hits the criteria for somebody they place that bet with. We are not good, to your point, at self-promotion. We, we need to do a little bit better. I mean, just a little bit would be okay. You know, one, one challenge I'd have on all of that is I hear exactly what you're saying, but I still find that, you know, I'm meeting with a C-suite and you, you think this is odd, but it's still happening as far as I'm concerned, that they often talk about their strategy being like a data fabric. I often have to say, for what? What are you trying to achieve ultimately in the outcome? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's not exactly sexy. Just data. In fact, it's a lot of work. But if you're going to like modernize your call centers and use like customer care through Watson Assistant, different stuff like that. Oh, great outcome. Let's do it. I'll show you how this works. Well, but a lot of times I still say they start with, hey, I just need a data fabric. And I, I really got to push for that outcome. Maybe you're not seeing that as much. I still think there's a problem. Uh, no, I, Al, I'm, I'm with you. The, so we are, from the technology side of our business, we are a horizontal technology business, right? And that inherently means that somebody's got to do something on top or with that technology to create the outcome. Deploying just containers and Kubernetes standalone doesn't do anything. And that's why, that's why... Yeah, if you think of our portfolio strategy, that's why at consulting, we've kept IBM consulting. We divested um, or we spun out um, our, our, our infrastructure managed services business, which is now called Kindrel. But we kept consulting because they do the custom work that implements and creates things on top of that platform. And we've invested in them so they have the hybrid skills, the OpenShift, the Red Hat skills to make that real in the world. We're leaning into our software portfolio to build capabilities on top of that. But again, it's data fabric. It's often horizontal technologies that then you have to put the analytical or AI use case on top of. And then that's also why we've invested in our ecosystem. So we've put a ton of effort, like we're just a very different company now of investing in our ecosystem. Because in a world where you know a hybrid cloud architecture creates so much more value, there's so much more to share with our ecosystem. So if it's you know, if it's software vendors, SaaS vendors that are building applications capabilities on top, we need those. That's why we're doubling down on the ecosystem is so that you have an answer, you know, hybrid cloud platform or data fabric or automation 
you have to have the answer for what purpose? How does it create value in the enterprise? And that ultimately is in something that touches a workflow that drives the business forward. That's great. Great. Do you have time for two more quick questions? I believe I do. I do. All right. Two more quick questions. And <laughs> thank okay. you for that. Here's, here's number one. I know you love all your children when you're representing a portfolio like IBM, but is there one either technology or something that excites you more than anything else? I mean, is it quantum? I mean, what really, uh, I mean, you can pick another one tomorrow. So nobody's upset, but what's your number? What what really excites you? Well, I'll I'll do two. Since you mentioned my kids, we have been doing like the VR. uh, We got the Oculus headset and, I do think it is really interesting to the experiences you can create with that uh, and just seeing their eyes light up when we put them into whatever my daughter ride in a virtual roller coaster or something. But, I, you know, we've been doing some IBM meetings in the metaverse. I think that will be interesting to, to, to watch. And then, you know, quantum, I mean, just because you mentioned it, I mean, quantum is fast, is fascinating. We are one century since quantum theory was proposed and we have running proof of it being real inside of IBM and it will quantum. And I'm pretty proud of what our team, I believe our team is the one that's ahead on making it real for humanity. And there are so many problems in the world. Like you mentioned my, so I've got a son that has a genetic condition that I'm part of the foundation working on and the researchers that are actually modeling how we create therapies, they're going to be using quantum computing because like at the end of the day, like that kind of modeling quantum physics matters to figuring out how molecules interact with each other, like electron entanglement, all these things that traditional computing struggles to do. Quantum computing is going to unlock so many things for humanity. It'll unlock things in batteries and solar panels and energy in chemistry, biotechnology, therapeutics, Anyway, it's going to take a while to emerge, but it is, it's like, it is profound. It will, it will advance humanity. And I'm just, uh, you know, metaverse collaboration would be pretty cool, but like, I don't know that we'll say it moves humanity forward. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm being too pessimistic on that. No, but like, the quantum I, was hoping stuff. I was hoping the metaverse was going to move my uh, football experience forward. I always envisioned like, me sitting yeah. on the 50 yard line. I'm surprised the NFL hasn't done that yet. I'd pay some big bucks to sit on my couch and be on the 50 yard line of a Super Bowl or something. I, I saw the pilot for the NBA. There's the, you can sit on the floor, but then I'd say, you know, why not sit at the, you know, the free throw line or sit <laughs> on the field? That would be cool too. So how do you distill all this information? I mean, I'm always studying and uh, I'm doing podcasts like this because I want to get information from experts like you. So I'm always trying to cheat the system yeah. to find more ways to get information faster because there's only so many hours in the day. What do you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so one is, I mean, what for, it, it could be anything. I've got on my phone, I've got, I've been using Flipboard for like a decade. So I have curated my feeds and things such that my Flipboard does tend to serve up to me. And it's like, you can't, you'd have to like put all the feeds in and the historical, which ones I click. So it's tuned for you, but it it just does a good job of serving up information to me. So that's been a source. Uh, I love, I mean, to your point internally at IBM, and I think anybody that's at like a tech company, some of these debates we have internally, like just lighting up 
posing those questions or starting the conversation with a bright group of IBMers for me has been an incredible learning because, I mean, Al, you've seen it. I get a ton out of that. And then, yeah, I'm a podcaster. I really do love software engineering radio. So I throw those on, uh, especially on a long run. I like to throw those on. I feel like in the, yeah. my day-to-day life, I get so many like text slacks, all these things that distract you. Yeah. It's actually when I go for like, go for a run is when I actually get to focus, listen and learn. And I, I, I over-focus cause I'm not, I'm trying to not focus on how my, how tired my legs are. I'm trying to focus on something else <laughs> to distract me. Oh, uh, look, I, I'm even a, a book audiobook reader for the same reason. Then I can get multiple things done at once. I can go run. And it also encourages you to run because, oh, I want to finish this book. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a win-win. A hundred percent. Is there any like reading material that you say though, you've got to view, you know, if you're, you're in this business, you got to be looking at the wall street journal every day. You got to be looking at tech crunch. Any, anything that you say is. Uh, uh, you know, I do, I do tech crunch business insider. Um, but you know, for me, and then I just read, I, I do read the economist cover to cover every week. I, I think just understanding the world we operate in is it's not a techno, it's not a technologist, but like it's an understanding of politics and business broadly that allows you to kind of see trends coming or, you know, whenever I'm in from a client, I feel like I, I don't really have an industry that I haven't at least have some peripheral understanding of it from, from just reading. So for me, it's the economist. I know I'm stretching this, but I'll be as quick as possible. Um, What's a day in the life look like for you? Do you get up like at five, five thirty? Do you work late? Uh, yeah, if I do a good day, it's probably. Um, so I'm. Uh, I, I I sincerely believe like uh, mind and body are both super important. So I'm generally I got a CrossFit gym near my house that I got a bunch of built relationships. Love the place, so uh, I'm there for the the six a.m. workout back home, kids off to school, uh, at my desk with a coffee in hand, seven, seven 45. Uh, lately I've been, uh, good on carving out like a good chunk of time in the morning to make sure that I'm like reading, emailing, like totally caught up before I jump into meetings. And then I'm, I'm back and forth in a bunch of conversations for the bulk of the day. And then, uh, back with the family for dinner and then probably, you know, switching on, you know, I should, probably shouldn't do this, but, you know, switching on work for a little bit longer every evening to just kind of do a little bit more catch up, a little bit more pre-reading ahead of the next day. We all do it. It's, it's, it's what I call work-life integration. Just hopefully you get more of the life integration than the work sometimes. Hey, I wake up, I wake up every day. I'm man, I'll tell you, I wake up every day, pretty excited about, just all of those things. I, I love going and ripping it in the workout. I love helping move IBM forward and kind of the, I love the tech industry. So like all those ideas. And then obviously love the family and, and, you know, one obvious silver lining of the pandemic. I'm, I'm about, I'm getting back to the office more often, but you know, a silver lining of the pandemic has been, you know, when I'm done yeah, with yeah. work, I'm 10 seconds from seeing the kiddos. And it's a, you know, it's a great, it, there, there's definitely silver linings to all this complexity over the last few years. One, one, I got to slip in here because it's a current event. Were you lobbying for the CHIPS Act? Uh, my team worked on some of the IBM proposal on it, which actually I, I think will hopefully help shape some of the overall consortium and how the work is done. I just... Uh, Why yeah, is it so I, important to you? Why is that so important to IBM? Well, 
I do listen. I, I do believe semiconductors are frankly like a um, a competitive front for the Western economy. Like it, it really is. Semiconductor innovation drives innovation on so many fronts, from you know all the way from like defense intelligence to automotive to airlines, etc. So being there all the way from you know real kind of econ- you know, from from business trade wars all the way to like real kind of national security things, it matters. And then I I just think what is really interesting for IBM is that I think the the structure of the semiconductor industry has changed where you know you got three big semiconductor manufacturers, but the the difficulty of the innovation layer around what the next generation of semiconductors has been is so expensive, so complex, so difficult that we can't do it three times across all those vendors. So IBM with a consortium in in Albany, New York, amazingly of all places in the world, Albany, New York is where the most brilliant semiconductor research in the world occurs. And it's with a consortium of partners of Samsung, Tokyo Electric, ASML, I'm leaving out a bunch, but the, the, the industry structure has changed such that that innovation layer really happens. It, you know, happens in Europe a little bit too, but, the manufacturers will execute and the innovation will happen in Albany. And IBM has been instrumental in orchestrating that innovation layer on both, you know, the semiconductor processes, manufacturing scalability, such that, you know, a Samsung or others can pick up that process and implement whatever it is two nanometer semiconductors. You can actually build those you know, economically and keep powering, you know, all this innovation we continue to see. So, um, and semiconductors, it is like, frankly, like the most, some of the most profound technology magic that happens in any industry anywhere is in what we do with, and I can't even do it justice, but you know, how we bounce some UV light off a piece of molten tin that has a wavelength longer than two nanometers and etches a two nanometer, two nanometer etching on a semiconductor. I mean, it's absolute, it's a, it's a miracle of humanity what is happening there. And so, yes, us continue to invest in that because we've recognized we can't, political boundaries have changed. We can't be beholden to that in other parts of the world. Um, it is, uh, it's a super important thing. And I, I think the ch- the fact that we are able to get it through in this political environment is just an indication of what what broad importance it has because it it did get bipartisan support you know in a world in which practically nothing else has bipartisan support so it's a big deal <laughs> that's an understatement look i think you know ibm we've been around for over 100 years sometimes we can be characterized likely by competitors as legacy but man, look at the stuff you're talking about. Isn't it great to be at IBM? I mean, we're out in front. So I mean, sure, it's, there's big business. There's struggles I deal with every day. Uh, too many emails that I have to get through. But at the end of the day, we're out front in like every space of this. I mean, it's really a lot of it's, fun. Uh, I will say just on on the semiconductor quantum, things like that, it, it, I feel like super lucky as a head of strategy, right, for IBM. HyperCloud and AI, I know today's strategy and I see path on there, quantum semis, like I see the next strategies coming. I don't think there's many other strategy leaders in any industry that like have as, we got a ton of work to do. I don't want to like dismiss how much work we had have ahead to really realize those, but like 
we got clarity and it's, 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 it's frankly a luxury that I don't think many other strategy leaders in the world have. So I just, uh, I, I do pinch myself every day, um, with the work I get to do. Well, now I, I see why you switched. I've got it now. Yeah, yeah, hey, no, uh, I, we've answered that question the long <laughs> way. Through. So, where can folks find you? Where can they find IBM Strategy? And do you want to say a word on the foundation you mentioned? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll say. Um, so, for IBMers, if you haven't been there, Roger underscore that on uh, Slack. Your questions on the strategy are always welcome, <laughs> and a good solid percentage of them I tackle myself. But often the community jumps in and nails them before I even realized there was a Slack message. Um, my LinkedIn is a great place to, to, to dig in. So you can follow me on LinkedIn if, uh, for anybody outside of IBM, talk about the strategy there and also tackle questions occasionally also. Um, and yeah, I am a, a member of uh, two nonprofit boards. Um, one is called the Majira Project. And so we've been working on uh, basically helping to accelerate uh, minority owned or uh, Diverse, diverse founder uh, businesses, because we think part of closing the diversity gap in our country is, clos- is closing the economic opportunity gap. So we're, and we're pretty proud of now, I think it's over a hundred different companies that we've helped scale and thousands of jobs created. And, you know, diverse founders tend to hire and develop diverse future leaders. So we're really proud of what we've done at the Majira project. I welcome anybody to jump in and in on that. And then, uh, I mentioned the Families SCN2A Foundation. So SCN2A is a gene that is really instrumental in, it's a sodium channel, but it's, in, it's, it, it's part of a number of uh, epilepsy and autism disorders. And it bears a lot of similarities to a lot of other um, sodium channels and neurotransmitters that are part of epilepsy and autism remain diseases that are largely... Um, not well treated and not well understood. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic with the, the brilliant work of Families SCN2A, but many others that are, are tackling, you know, in the genetic era are actually able to understand the target they're going after. Um, I'm excited about the potential for, you know, uh, you know, the patients and families that deal with these, like my family does, you know, on a daily basis, giving them a better path for the long run and uh, a lot of optimism on, on what's to come for them. Well, maybe it's a reason. So somebody like you is championing this on a foundation you mentioned. So good for you. I've got a daughter that's got hearing issues. And so I've got here to help kc.org if anybody's listening uh, that we, uh, that we promote as well. Hey, thank you for being here. Strategy, uh, uh, needed you. You're doing a great job. And I appreciate your candid dialogue, Roger. Great. All right. Great, Al, great I look forward to hearing the pings coming from this. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, this is going to give you more work. Everybody listening, thank you. As always, I, I would be remiss in not saying so. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we will see you on the podcast. Later, folks. <laughs>